Hello, my name is Tapu Maseba and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, episode 39. First, some headlines. This past January was the slowest month for global mergers and acquisitions since April 2013. In a coronavirus update, as a result of the restriction of air and road travel and quarantining of cities, China expects a 25% drop in oil demand, and Hong Kong airline Cathay Pacific has asked all 27,000 of its employees to consider up to three weeks of unpaid leave in an effort to preserve capital. Fiat Chrysler have also said that the closure of supply chains from China could halt production in one of their European plants within four weeks. The new chairwoman of the John Lewis Partnership has warned of more potential store closures and job losses as it continues to face its, quote, most challenging period, end quote, since its beginnings in the 1920s. Huawei is suing U.S. telecoms company Verizon for more than $1 billion for patent infringement after they were unable to agree on license terms. In Deal News, Slaughter and May, Freshfields, and McFarland's all have roles in the rescue of Aston Martin. And finally, Steve Dixon, head of the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, has given no time frame for allowing Boeing 737 MAX back in the air, but a certification flight could take place in the next few weeks. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. Now, the longer reads. The first of the longer reads is that Goldman Sachs is reportedly striking a deal with Amazon to provide loans to small and medium-sized businesses. First reported by the Financial Times, GS is building technology to facilitate small business loans to its U.S. customers through Amazon's lending platform. I know what you might be thinking. Amazon has a lending platform. Truth be told, I had no idea until this story, but it makes perfect sense and probably would have been more surprising had they not had this. Amazon has had a lending platform for its online sellers since 2011, offering 12-month loans in amounts ranging from $1,000 to $750,000, and it appears that Goldman Sachs want in. Since more than half of the products sold on Amazon are provided by SMBs, this would give Goldman Sachs a new client pool of over 1.9 million U.S. companies, and there is already more than $863 million in outstanding SMB loans through Amazon's lending platform. GS sees this as a potentially fruitful revenue stream. The project could launch as early as March, and it would be the second partnership GS has struck with a big tech company in as many years, with Apple launching its credit card backed by Goldman last year. With that said, let's discuss its relevance and importance. First of all, we've mentioned the changing legal landscape along with other industries, and banking is no different. Goldman Sachs has actually faced years of slightly subpar performance, which culminated in its relatively underwhelming strategy day, its first investor day in its 151-year history that was hosted last week in New York. It has been branded as underwhelming simply because though a significant increase in return on equity was touted in the next five years, it would still be less than the return on equity that one of its competitors, J.P. Morgan Chase, posted just last year. In a way, it tells us a story about the adapt-or-die nature in the industries we encounter in our day-to-day, and we'll actually hear more about that in the final read of this episode. GS's bread-and-butter pre-financial crisis was bond and stock trading, which has been significantly impacted since then by much lower margins, more competition, and post-crisis regulation. J.P. Morgan Chase saw the writing on the wall quite early, and this is Goldman Sachs trying to catch up with the times, now focusing on taking part in the, quote, banking as a service, end quote, revolution. We can make a similar parallel to law firms and how the business is changing. 
As said in last week's episode about the CMA's behavior with large-scale mergers and acquisitions in the UK amidst the economic uncertainty, and the first headline in today's episode about the slowdown in global M&A, how law firms best offset these movements may define how they look in the next few years or decade. It's also worth noting that it is not as if Apple and Amazon are being charitable by helping poor old Goldman Sachs. It's mutually beneficial as tech companies also try their best to diversify and enter financial services without having to face the regulation hurdles that banks face. These partnerships make for good quid pro quos. In short, everyone is trying to diversify their portfolio. GS isn't even the only bank to report strategy shifts. Vanguard, one of the world's largest investment banks, is now entering the private equity market, for example. So, quick question for you. How differently, or similarly, should these companies be regulated compared to banks when they do endeavor in business traditionally left for banks? Same goes for banks when they endeavor in banking as a service. And so, if you're interested in banking law, GS's partnership and investor day is quite significant news. Otherwise, you can use this story as a model for how traditional bodies across sectors innovate and grow. Or even more generally, now you can tell your friends about Goldman Sachs' strategy day and how analysts weren't all that impressed by it. So long as we agree that I am not responsible for how your friends react to you sharing finance news if you've never done so before. Credit for this story goes to Laura Noonan, Gregory Magana, John Dietry, and Stephen Musil. The second read is Evershed Sutherland's ALSP Connexo has partnered with accountancy firm Grant Thornton. So, first off, we've spoken about ABSs in episode 28, and someone actually messaged the podcast Instagram, which is at ComwarePod, and they asked what the difference between an ABS and ALSP is. So, perfect time to make that distinction in an episode. An ABS, which is an acronym for an alternative business structure, can function in essence like a normal law firm, but the stark differences are that it can be managed by individuals who are not legally trained, receive external investment, and provide services beyond traditional legal work. ALSPs or ALSBs are the acronyms for Alternative Legal Service Providers or Businesses respectively, which is a body with the intention of, in the simplest way possible, making certain aspects of legal work cheaper for clients, such as document review and contract management. Essentially, work you shouldn't have to pay partner rates for. It also allows smaller clients to receive some high-quality legal work for lower fees. Some firms have taken on the wave of ALSPs with a if-you-can't-beat-them-join-them mentality by either acquiring an ALSP or making their own. An example of such a firm is Evershed Sutherland, who launched Connexo an ALSP, last June. And fast forward to this past Wednesday, where Conexo has struck a partnership deal with accountancy firm Grant Thornton and an external tech provider named DXC Technology to help clients deal with the phasing out of the IBOR rate in 2022. And on that note, what is IBOR? It is the acronym for the Interbank Offered Rate, which is a group of global benchmarks for interest rates set by a number of lending banks, submitting the rate at which they are willing to lend to other banks for different currencies in different periods. Once those banks submit those figures, the LIBOR is calculated, which influences a number of transactions, including but not limited to mortgages and loans. One of the more famous rates is LIBOR, which is simply the London Interbank Offered Rate. 
The issue with these benchmark rates is they would be determined by figures banks would submit and would therefore be open to manipulation and manipulated they were. As a result, the world has generally decided that the financial services sector should move on from IBORs and on to alternate reference rates by the end of 2021. These are rates that will be based on actual overnight transactions instead of relying on the honesty of banks. The rate published by the Bank of England is called SONIA, which is an acronym for the Sterling Overnight Indexed Average. To be perfectly honest, this is only very relevant if you are interested in financial services or banking and debt finance law. But on that note, this shift will create a number of regulatory problems for a number of clients, not only including banks, but a number of market participants, such as companies and their lawyers, who may decide to renegotiate the terms of current loan facilities to remove references to LIBOR and replace them with the alternate reference rate. This renegotiation may not be the easiest of discussions. And truth be told, that's just the tip of the iceberg considering how embedded these benchmark rates have been in financial services. For that reason, and as per for topics like this, links to references about LIBOR, IBORs, and the transition are in the description. So, this partnership. Connexo is to contribute legal advice and manage service processing. Grant Thornton will provide advice for quality assurance and conduct frameworks, and DXE Technology will offer AI tools to assist in the legislative transition, particularly with data privacy and large-scale automation. Connexo's head of regulatory response, Brett Aubin, has said, quote, We recognize that for wide problems like the IBOR transition, no single organization can responsibly deliver an integrated solution out of their core strengths alone. This new, dynamic, and innovative collaboration lets go of corporate ego to ensure clients receive effective, pragmatic, risk-managed, and cost-optimized solutions, end quote. So, this is all very interesting, to say the least. We've spoken about the changing legal landscape so much and how firms are facing these challenges, and now a firm's ALSP is collaborating with the so-called enemy in accounting firms to find solutions. Furthermore, such a collaboration is probably cheaper on the front end as well, as there is no requirement to invest a large amount into developing one's own infrastructure to become the so-called and coveted one-stop shop. It's also worth noting that other firms have responded differently to this IBOR transition, with Hogan Lovells creating their own artificial intelligence solution called Hogan Lovells Engage LIBOR, and Condor, Field Fisher's ALSP, developing IBOR Solve for the same thing. This shows that there is never a single way to do things, and we will get to see what decision worked out the best a few years from now. It's also worth pointing out that such a partnership like Connexos with Grant Thornton and DXC illustrates how expensive becoming a one-stop shop could be when you imagine how much this collaboration brings together. And maybe strategic partnerships like this add a different dimension to the future of law firms. And speaking of different dimensions, until now, I can candidly admit that I'd imagined firm-owned ALSPs as the metaphorical little brother, kind of kept at bay to do more menial tasks compared to the parent firm. This shows that that is not the case at all, with an ALSP collaborating with one of the world's largest accounting firms to provide better solutions for clients at what would in theory be a lower cost than that of traditional law firms for those clients, and at a lower operating capital cost than their competition. We see a similar quid pro quo to that of Amazon and Goldman Sachs. 
All of it just makes for interesting viewing as we witness how the legal landscape changes and even how the accounting firms outside of the Big Four react to the Big Four stronghold. Credit for this story goes to Simon Woods, the Bank of England, and Cristiano Dallabona. And now for the final read. A UK ban on the sale of new petrol, diesel, or hybrid cars will be brought forward from 2040 to 2035. And that confirms it. An entire four weeks of transport news. First it was Fly B, then HS2, then regulatory divergences impact on the automobile industry, then Northern, and now this. However, this shows us how transport is a pressing topic domestically and is facing a number of challenges and changes. In this instance, the UK is still targeting net zero carbon emissions by 2050, as said in the Fly B episode, and as part of this, experts have said that a 2040 car ban would be too late to reach that goal. Hybrid cars weren't initially on the ban list when this was announced in 2017, but have now been included. This would mean that after 2035, people would only be able to buy new electric or hydrogen-powered vehicles. Currently, there is no nationwide scrapping plan of the diesel and petrol cars, and technically, second-hand cars can still be sold after 2035. Friends of the Earth President Mike Child said that bringing the ban forward was the right thing to do, but 2030 would be even better. However, Friends of the Earth also accused the government of, quote, greenwashing consumers, end quote, by convincing them that hybrid cars were eco-friendly, though some produce higher CO2 emissions than diesel cars, and by banning them, the resale value of the cars has dropped, meaning hybrid car owners may hold on to the cars for longer, resulting in higher CO2 emissions. Mike Hawes, chief exec of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, has said the government has moved the goalposts and asked the government to safeguard the industry and jobs. Hawes also said that meeting these goals would take, quote, more than industry investment, end quote. Buying incentives are also necessary to make cleaner cars accessible to all income groups. He concluded that, quote, this is about market transformation, end quote. So, this is where that adapt-or-die sentiment from the first read comes back. Essentially, the UK government has given exclusive diesel and petrol car manufacturers an expiration date. Granted, they would have known about the 2040 deadline for at least three years, but the five-year change may be an even larger pinch for an already struggling industry. Just last week, the last headline reported was that UK car production sank to its lowest in almost a decade last year, and how Mike Hawes called it a, quote, grave concern, end quote. The week prior, we mentioned that regulatory divergence from the EU would result in an increase in manufacturing costs in the UK. This isn't even mentioning the higher manufacturing cost of electric vehicles, even with manufacturing subsidies. And once again, this may still present another gap between consumer wants and consumer behavior, considering sales of electric vehicles are less than 2% of the market. But that might be price-preventing consumers from making the change, as the price of electric cars is higher than diesel and petrol cars. Also, there is currently no infrastructure for electric cars. It has been estimated that the UK needs 25 million charging points, and that there are currently 11,000. This would require billions of pounds of investment for a transport sector already projected to spend billions for rail infrastructure and more billions for HS2. So, I say all of this to say that I agree. Market transformation is necessary. 
Should subsidies be increased for both manufacturers and buyers? Should VAT be removed for the purchase of electric vehicles? With an increase in ride-sharing and public transport, do people still see cars as a long-term solution even? What about R&D into self-driving cars? Where does that fit into the equation? Also, what does this mean for the shrinking automobile industry? Is there a future where electric vehicle production maintains the levels of employment? With self-driving cars in development, will future regulation ban the sale of manually driven cars? I wouldn't say that this is kicking the can down the road like the Fly B Rescue, as there are truly a number of unknown quantities here, and there is a global push for zero carbon emissions. But speaking of Fly B, if the solution there is truly to do away with air passenger duty and in effect make air travel cheaper, surely that affects the pursuit of zero carbon emissions and places a disproportionate burden on the automobile industry. This also asks the question about consumer rights and disgruntled manufacturers alike. Are they willing to bring an action against the Department for Transport for this? Manufacturers for the moving of goalposts, and consumers for how hybrid cars are marketed to them. There are also general legal practice discussions to be had. That of looming regulatory shifts as clients seek guidance on how best to function, and potential disputes as previously mentioned. But generally, this is evidently another pressing topic that you may be asked about, and it's important to consider where you stand, the interested stakeholders, its potential impact, and what your solutions would be. In closing, the automobile industry is facing a number of challenges that someone commercially aware should probably be cognizant of. Credit for this story goes to the BBC, Peter Campbell, Mike Wright, and Gordon Rayner. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. As you may have noticed, all the longeries this week have kind of centered around changing landscapes. And as a result, that's the title of this week's episode. This doesn't mean that future episodes will always be themed in this way simply because I cannot predict the stories that pique my interest that week. But if you are interested in more themed episodes, please do let me know. The podcast's email address is on the first line of the episode's description, and the podcast's Instagram page is at comwarepod. That is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. Please be sure to subscribe, follow, and rate on the platform you listen to the podcast on. It goes a long way, and the ratings are generally a happy sight for me personally. Other than that, as always, thank you for listening and for your support, and you will hear from me next week for what is the season finale of the podcast.